it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Even got in the rotation. Rotation? Is he in the rotation? Sort of. <laughs> I, yeah. What baseball trains you for? It's just like training to be a king. Now you're king, and now you're over being a king. What do you do? I wonder how much the new park and people trying to hit to certain parts of the new park is coming into it. And welcome to episode number 273 of Artificial Turf Wars, where we believe it's never too early to scoreboard watch. I am your host, Greg Wisniewski, and I am joined by the immaculate Joshua Housem. How you doing, Josh? Nine out of nine. Yeah, if you don't know what we're talking about, We'll talk about that probably as one of our final thoughts later. <laughs> Stick around <laughs> at the end of the podcast. Uh, but the first part of the podcast, we're going to talk about uh, how the Blue Jays have done in the last two weeks, uh, how, or maybe all of June when it concerns uh, Yusei Kikuchi, who's a bit of a renaissance man. Uh, the changing of uh, Chris Bassett's uh, catcher and his, his pitch-calling style. Uh, we have some good news about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. It turns out he can hit home runs in Toronto. Uh, and then we have Trevor Richards, who has uh, who has transitioned himself into a, a totally different guy, who reminds us of an, of another guy who did really well for the Jays in the last couple of years. We have injury updates on uh, Ryu and uh, Chad Green, Zach Pop, Kevin Kiermeyer, and I don't know if it's a, it's not really an injury update. We have an update on Alec Manoa, which is ooh yeah, 
This is the one we're going to have to spin. We have an interview for the first time in a while with Dennis Gilbert, who was instrumental in the Bobby Bonilla contract. Because tomorrow, as we as we record this, tomorrow is Bobby Bonilla Day. And if uh, you are not a longtime baseball fan, oh, there's so much about Bobby Bonilla Day that you need to learn. And we have, of course, your questions, and we have a gold star to hand out to Blue Jays, DH, first baseman sometimes, Brandon Belt, for taking this whole all-star voting thing very seriously. Josh, where shall yeah. we begin? You say Kikuchi, I guess. You say Kikuchi is back. Okay, so, to be to be back, you have to have been there previously. Arguably, he was, he's somewhere he was where there he's... for the first, you know, five starts of the season. All right, all right, fair. So, yeah, it's got to give the guy some respect here. <laughs> No, but you know, it's, he's kind of had a little bit of an up and down season, at least to start. He had a three ERA in the month of April, five point eight three in the month of May, averaging, you know, under five innings a start. And then in month of June, he's been tremendous, and he's sort of as Kikuchi goes with his command, so goes his success, right? Because he still gives up some home runs, and you know, he still gives up. Well, actually, his hits, the hits he's been giving up haven't been there the last few times out because he's starting to build in the strikeouts more than he was earlier in the season. And part of it is that he's just throwing his curveball more. Hey, uh, we say it's very difficult for guys to figure things out at the major league level, but definitely on the better side of things, because I think the last time we talked about him, we were talking about, hey, five and dive Kikuchi is still better than, oh my God, you blew up in three innings and we don't know what to do now, right? So we were like, okay, well, he's a fifth starter. He can do, he can go five because he'd gone five, like three outings in a row or something. Yeah, so he didn't top five innings from May 14th to June 15th, which was a span of seven starts. He did not, he threw either five or fewer innings in all of them. So he just looked like, and he threw five in four of those. And, and he didn't throw fewer than four in any. So, yeah, five and dive guy. And he and even in those in those starts, he was still limiting runs uh, from he gave up four earned runs once and five earned runs once. And then the other ones were one, three and three twos. So still giving them a shot, but not going deep. And then he just decided, you know what? I'm going to do both. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so if you if you're not you know wasting pitches again, control is a lot for him. Even if he's not walking people, being in the zone and giving up the occasional home run is a better formula for Kikuchi than than nibbling because nibbling doesn't work for him. Yeah, and you know it's pretty incredible when you think of what Yusei Kikuchi was last year. He has now made 16 starts this season. He has walked more than two batters twice last year it was probably would have been 16 out of 16 <laughs> <laughs> it felt like it for sure yeah it sure did and then yeah in the last two he when the jays really needed to get some innings from their rotation because they'd had some short starts from gossman and bassett and then with their bullpen day that they'd thrown in the mix there they really needed some someone else to step up and Kikuchi did he threw six innings against the Marlins six shutout and then he threw seven innings of one run two hit ball against Oakland and now not the greatest offenses in the world but he did what you're supposed to do against those kind of lineups 
Yeah. So uh, we give him a big check mark for his recent performance. Obviously, we'll see if he if he draws a uh, worse straw in terms of the opposition next time. We'll see whether he's back to five and dive. But again, we can live with that guy, provided uh, the Blue Jays have a fifth person in the rotation, which I suppose we will get to after we discuss uh, the other the other guys who are stepping up at the moment. So. Um, do you want to talk about Chris Bassett first? Uh, because he, he he's stopped using Pitchcom to call his own pitches, and he now has Kirk as his regular catcher. Yeah, so I think Kirk was always his regular catcher, but Kirk got hurt. <laughs> so it meant they had to go with Danny Jansen and Tyler Heineman at points. And the success that Bassett has with Kirk compared to the other two is just it's too stark to just be a complete fluke. Now, early on when he when it's like when Kirk was calling his, or sorry, when Bassett was calling his own game, well, Kirk is the best framer of the three catchers, right? So it makes sense. But here's the difference. It's it's extreme. With Kirk, he has a 1.60 ERA and batters are hitting 149 with a 244 on base and a 260 slugging. With Heineman, it's only one starts, and it was bad, so I'm not going to even include that one. Jansen, 10.29 ERA, 387 batting average, 443 on base, 720 slugging. I mean, you don't have to be superstitious to want him to throw to Kirk all the time. <laughs> right. Now, I do, do I think that, that the difference between Kirk and Jansen is, is – nine runs of ERA? No, I don't. I think that's a little bit of small sample size. You know, Bassett pitched poorly when Kirk when Jansen was catching. But I also think that there's an element of receiving when it came to Kirk and pitch calling because in the outing that just happened against the Giants where Bassett set a career high with 12 strikeouts over six, he faced a lot of left-handed batters because Bassett has been awful against lefties. And Kirk decided to actually, because he's calling the pitches now, he changed up the pitch mix. It's like, <laughs> maybe that can work. <laughs> he he you know, threw a lot more four-seamers and curveballs and instead of the sinker. And sinkers have a reverse platoon split. Sorry, they have platoon, they do have platoon splits. And whereas four-seamers and curveballs are pretty neutral. So I'm actually surprised that on the season against left-handed batters, Bassett throws more sinkers Consider almost three times as many sinkers as four seamers against lefties. Yesterday, it was he threw twice as many four seamers as sinkers. So I think that it's just identifying things that can help him pitch better that Kirk is doing that other guys may not have done to this point. There was an interesting observation on the broadcast. And I, I think it was Joe Siddle, um, from the perspective, obviously, of a of a career catcher. He said there are a lot of times when a pitcher does not know how good or bad his stuff is on a given night, right? Like mm -hmm. the the catcher's judgment of what the pitch the batters are reacting to is better than the pitcher's. So yes, if you throw you know ninety eight with a wicked slider, you're probably not worried about that as much. But when you're talking with a guy like Bassett, where every pitch is a little bit different and you're trying to you're trying to judge a lot of reactions to a lot of different things i think having a, a catcher you trust to call the pitches is gonna is probably gonna work out better um than one who is trying to follow a game plan that you set out beforehand 
because there's so many things that, that might be a little bit off or a little bit on. Yeah, I agree. Um, actually, I, okay, we had Vlad next, but I'm going to go to Trevor Richards. Speaking of guys who have two pitches, <laughs> we brought that up. You, <laughs> you, you mentioned this, that Trevor Richards threw away his uh, junky curveball and said, you know what, I'm as a reliever, this is before he even got in the rotation. Rotation? Is he in the rotation? Sort of. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, we said, Trevor Richards decided, okay, it's going to be change up and fastball. Man, that change up has made so many people look stupid when he's functioning as an opener. Yeah, so he's now done it three times. He had the one against Texas that didn't go as well because he gave up a couple home runs. But in the first one, seven strikeouts over three. And then yesterday, or so two days ago against the Giants, <clears throat> recording this on Friday, five strikeouts over three with no runs. And they moved him out of the opener the last the previous two times because they had off days, so they didn't need that role. And it's tough because so you know, you teased it at the beginning. It's Ross Stripling, right? It's the guy who was the leverage-ish reliever or the longer, the middle reliever who can come in and just really do well out of the rotation. It helps that Richards was a starter <laughs> with Miami before being traded to Tampa and then eventually Milwaukee and then the Blue Jays. But he's just able, has shown himself able to clearly go through an entire lineup plus a batter or two Without worry, because despite throwing two pitches, because their his changeup is so good. Yeah, uh, notwithstanding the fact that San Francisco strikes out more than any team I have ever seen in my life. Like I know strikeouts are endemic to the league now, but holy moly, do these guys swing and miss a lot? Yes, they do have a lot of that in their lineup for sure. So when you have pitchers who get strikeouts. They will exploit it like Gossman did, Richards did, and somehow Bassett did. That one was a bit of a surprise, but you know, yeah, they, for sure. You know, the Jays did get a lot of pitching strikeouts against that Giants team. Um, so the the Blue Jays are in kind of a weird situation because unlike Ross Stripling, who you you could foresee stretching into a starter because he was still using three pitches and and going you know two times. Two times through the lineup, there was a lot of "Hey, we're not we're not doing a third time with Stripling until much further on in the process." Um, now we have Richards. They don't want to show batters Richards twice if they can avoid it, especially not the the heart of the lineup. Do you think that's being overly cautious? Um. Yes, I do. I think that. You know, the way Gossman pitches, for example, although he does have a slider, he can flash if he needs to. But I think that Richards could easily do it. Now, I can understand why they're like, well, he's a, he's been a reliever for so long. We don't want to stretch him out beyond a comfort zone. But I think if they needed him to go four or five, even he could probably do it when he's being as efficient as he has been a couple of these times in his opener role. I guess the counterpoint there is in between those starts, because it's not because they've had off days and they know they don't need him every fifth day to be an opener. They've used him as a reliever in between times, which is easier to do if you haven't had him throw 60 pitches, right? That's true. And, and the thing is they won't need him again until in later in the, like, so they'll, they'll be able to get through this entire Red Sox series without using one. 
they switched up the order. They had the the bullpen game in game two of the of the San Francisco series, so that the off day on Monday falls on what would be the bullpen day again. So they won't need it again until the middle of the Tigers series, and then they have the home the All Star break. So they can get away with it just one more time until basically the middle of July, which gives time for other things to work themselves out a little bit. And before we talk about those, those other things, we should talk about the the bright spot in the offense. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hits home runs, Josh. He, he is a home run hitter. I forgot. <laughs> it's easy to forget. It's, he hit none at home until uh, the Giants, sorry, the Oakland series. Oakland, yeah. Yeah, and then he hit back-to-back days, uh, and then he hit one in the uh, against the Giants, which broke open a 0-0 tie, which is kind of when you want your big guy hitting a big home run. Where has this guy been? Yeah, it, it really has been a massive struggle for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Uh, they keep talking about how he's had signs, and it was going to come soon, and it was going to come soon. and Well, I guess they were somewhat right. Um, you know, he was starting to hit the ball in the air a little more towards, and also he was starting to hunt inside pitches a little bit more, which he had sort of been swinging at everything low and away, which was just not where his power is. He can hit the ball away over the fence out to right field, but the ball is down in a way. He's just going to smash that into the ground. Sometimes they're going to be hits because he hits the ball so hard, but you're not going to hit for power that way. And in these games, you know, the, the pitches that he hit out, they were all in, like, hit a home run zone. But the difference is that Vlad was not hunting those. Or or if he was, he was in, caught in between fastball and breaking ball or something, and he wasn't doing damage on those. And now in the last few games, he's done it. And it's hopeful that he can continue it going forward. But I think the question is, does he maintain that discipline uh, both to hunt for his pitch and to slow down on chasing pitches because he went from an April where he had a, a very low chase rate, uh, very disciplined, to a May where he was above league average in chase, which is not what we're expecting from Vlad, right? Knowing how good his eye is. Yeah, and it's actually that has been the problem, and the team has has talked to him about that. The hitters were pitchers were attacking him low and away with with you know fastballs and breaking balls on the corner and then stretching them off the corner. And they were just saying, stop swinging at those. Even if they're a strike, like if you get two strikes, fine, swing at that. But otherwise, just don't. And because the more you swing at those, the more the pitches just off the plate are going to seem like you can think ones you can swing at. And that's what's just been happening to him. He was just chasing too many pitches that he can't do damage on. So hopefully he can start to get back to the guy that he was the last couple of years, really, where he was not expanding the zone as much. Yeah, because I think that's really what you want is is him to take those walks and and whoever, you know, Matt Chapman after him should be able to do some damage. You want to put you want to put that pressure on and having him chasing is means uh, you know, the the whole thing breaks down. Speaking of the rest of the lineup, it's been a while since we've recorded. So the, the Blue Jays lost the series to the Orioles, which I believe was our we recorded last in the middle of that. Then they lost the series to Texas. Then they won the series against the Marlins, won the series against the Athletics, won the series against the Giants. I think they we have, recorded. I think that we talked about the Texas series, but uh, possibly, yeah. So they they are on what is a good run. Sort of the problem is, in order to uh, to win these games, 
a lot of them have been like just barely enough offense, it feels like. With the exception of the athletics on Sunday when <laughs> Yeah, no, it it hasn't been good. I mean even in in that Miami one, they scored five runs in one inning and then they got one more. And then against the Giants, they scored five runs in one inning and scored two, three runs in the rest of the series. And th- as a recording, this, they're being shut out into the sixth against Boston. This offense just habitually fails to score runs. And it's a, like, they're, as you said, their record belies what has been happening on the offense because the pitching has been so good. But yeah, they, they just can't find a consistent, difficult to pitch to offense. I mean, Matt Chapman. So I, this, this was, again, we're stealing from James and T.O. because that's what we do here. <laughs> really invite him on. <laughs> uh, he struck out 21 times in his last 50 plate appearances. Yeah, 40%. That's the guy who's hitting fifth right now. I, I still, I don't know why he's hitting fifth. I don't know why they moved him up. Um, but they did because he had a couple good games. Like, oh, he's back. Well, no, he's not. He's still struggling mightily. And I think that having guys that don't hit the put the ball and play behind Vlad is a mistake. We talked about this on that last podcast two weeks ago. And they keep doing it. Um, well, for, it, first it, inning it, of, of one of the Giants games was uh, the double by Springer, single by Bichette that moved Springer to third. Uh, strikeout, strikeout, strikeout. That feels like the the trademark inning for this team. <laughs> Which is weird because that's actually not accurate in terms of the strikeouts. The team as a whole doesn't strike out very much. You wouldn't think it, given that they're situational strikeouts. But in that game, they struck out 17 times. And and so Ron, um, John Schneider came out and he said, well, you know, you've got Walker and then you've got Wood throwing from low left slot. And then they go to um, Rogers, the righty, throwing from a low right slot. And then they go to Doval throwing 102 from up top. He's like, that's really tough. It's OK, but they saw six innings of Alex Wood. Alex Wood's not very good. It's like, so it's like, yeah, okay, maybe he throws from a funkier arm angle than some of the other guys. But if you see it for six innings, you should be able to hit it. The, the third time through the order penalty is a, is a real thing. You, you should be capitalizing on that. Also, I watched the inning where, uh, with, with great interest where the, uh, the Submariner reliever, which one was that? Rogers. Rogers came in. Um, you, like... I, I understand it's hard to pick up the ball, but you need to force a pitcher who is doing that into the zone after he has demonstrated after the first two people that he's having trouble finding the zone. And none of the, the batters were waiting until they actually got a strike, right? For the most part, it was, oh, I think that's going to be close. He was missing by two feet, a foot, up and away. And he was still getting swings and misses from multiple batters. Yeah. It's, it's like that's not very disciplined. I, I understand you want to, to defend your hitters as it's a difficult job to hit in the major leagues. Yes. But the job is to make the pitcher throw strikes. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't know what to say about how they get out of this. Because... 
it, it just isn't working. I, I, whatever it is is going on is not working because they they just can't sequence hits. They can't hit for enough power. You know, Vlad's homer was the only one they hit in that giant series. And the Giants are not a great pitching team. Yeah, okay, Logan Webb is a sinker baller, but... Sinker ballers yeah. and mistakes can lead to home runs. We've seen that in the past. Right, <laughs> right exactly. A sinker ball plus a fly ball swing is a line drive, which can be a home run. And the power just has to start coming around more because it's it's what they need. Like So in that game, for example, that, that they struck out 17 times, they also hit five doubles. So... That was power, but no contact. Because you, you've hit five doubles and you strike out 17 times, you're probably not going to score very many runs. Yep. Um, so they basically need to start hitting for some more power because the strikeout game was a little fluky. But they haven't. And that's kind of led to this pitchers having to be perfect. So you know, as we're recording this, the Blue Jays are now trailing 4 nothing to... The Red Sox. Why, the Jays can't beat the American League East, and I don't understand why. <laughs> but it's another situation where Brios was in the sixth, and he gave up two home runs to make it 4 nothing. But he has to be perfect. And it's just too much to ask of your pitchers. Yeah. I mean, six innings, four runs allowed is a reasonable start. It's not good, but it's going to happen, and you need to have an answer for it. And the answer is not to get shut out by James Paxton. Yeah. With one hit. Anyway, moving along past that frustration, uh, maybe <laughs> the funny thing is there is no there is no help coming on the offense, which is why I think you're right that I I'll be honest. They just, I, fire, but fire they have the hitting better hitters. hitters, right? Yeah. So like the, their hitters are have shown throughout their careers that they are better than this, and they're almost all. Bichette's pretty much the exception. To a man, maybe Merrifield too. But other than those two, everybody's having a worse season or some of them considerably worse than what you'd expect. So something has to give. And I, I still think that, like, look, maybe change the voice that's speaking to them because it's not working. Yeah. I mean, Don Mattingly's right there. <laughs> yeah. And again, they've been winning a lot more than they've been losing. So I don't want to make this sound like it's super negative talk about the Blue Jays. Like, they've been <laughs> – because their pitching has been that good. But it's just – these pitchers are constantly having to throw high stress innings and that's going to weigh on them as the season goes on and they might struggle. So we saw this in 2016, actually, when in September, the Jays pitching just fell apart because they've been carrying the team for five and a half months and then they almost missed the postseason. I think that's the risk here. I mean, the, I mean, the rotation's on a knife's edge as it is with only four starters in it at the moment. So the risk here is really that it could just fall apart at any moment if the offense doesn't start giving them a little more breathing room. Yeah. So there are people who believe that Hyunjin Ryu is uh, a good a good chance of being the answer to that spot in the rotation. And then there are people who are like, why are you even talking about that? I've seen both on Twitter. Um, well, if you don't think Hyunjin Ryu, this is my opinion, if you don't think Hyunjin Ryu has at least a good shot of filling that rotation spot uh, before Alec Manoa does whatever Alec Manoa does, why are they rehabbing him? Like, he's not coming back as a reliever. Isn't the whole point sure isn't. to bring him back as a as a member of the rotation and hopefully better than one of the options that you're currently rolling out? And obviously he's better than nothing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. So he threw a, what's called a three-up sim game. What that means is that he gets up and down three times. So it's the equivalent of three innings, but not really. 
and he was up to 88 miles an hour. It was his first time facing batters, so the velocity is typically going to be a little lower at that point. They think there's more to come. There better be, because 88 miles an hour is not going to get it done. And he's going to be doing a an actual game, a rehab outing next week. So he's he is on his way back. He's going to be throwing three to four innings. That's the plan in his next outing. And as we said, with the way that the rotation's playing out with the off days, that could give him three rehab outings before they need another fifth starter a second time. I don't see why he couldn't be ready. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, Buck is like, oh, it takes six weeks to build up. I'm like, you don't, you don't need him to build up if, you know, all the way because you can you can move Trevor Richards into the long man role after Hyunjin Ryu, or you can have him open if Ryu can only do three innings, right? Like you, you, you're better off having innings from a healthy Ryu than you are puttering around with him in the minors for longer and longer. In my opinion, yes, absolutely, and. Like, as you said, you could have Ryu go 4-5 or five and Richards, or like you said, the reverse. Richard, well, you're not usually going to open for Ryu because he's never pitched that way. So I think it'd be more likely to do it the other way around. But he has shown throughout his career that he's a really good pitcher. If he's able to get back up into the low 90s, he could help. He might, maybe he won't. Maybe he'll come up and be terrible. But I, I don't see why you would just assume he would be one or the other but he can be good so you got to give him the chance yeah uh also on the same track as ryu uh is chad green who was signed knowing he was injured i believe um yep, yep. so green represents uh what does he represent to the bullpen is he an upgrade <laughs> at the moment uh, he well, he he's a history of being a light a late inning reliever. So if he can be if he can come back and be that, he throws hard as a really good slider, and has a, a track record as being one of the better seventh eighth inning pitchers in the game. And he's throwing his first sim game Saturday tomorrow as we're recording this. And as a reliever, he doesn't need as as much building up because. You know, he could throw tomorrow and then throw his first bullpen day or actual game action in a couple of days later than that. And then three, four, five outings can take two weeks for a relief pitcher. And then he's back, which is basically taking you through the all-star break. I, I that It seems like a reasonable target now for Chad Green to be right after the all-star break. He could be ready. And, you know, the late inning relievers haven't been a problem, especially when Richards is pitching among them. <laughs> <laughs> but they also have lots of non-late inning relievers on the roster right now. They have Trent Thornton is there. Mitch White is there. And I'm blanking on Addison Barker. The guy who, what? What'd you say? No, I said Barker. Barger's a pitcher. Uh, Barger's oh, not a pitcher. Okay, no, no. I, I, yes, I, I'm talking about Bowden no. Francis, but it, that's, that's I was just I was, blanking yeah. on his name. There you go. I, I helped you. <laughs> no, you didn't. Um, <laughs> it, it's funny because Bowden Francis has actually been very solid, but 
they're still all long relievers, and you, it's not really the bullpen formation that you would want. Thornton has also been excellent, by the way. I, I, this is not to take away from their pitching. Mitch White hasn't been. But it's just not the bullpen setup that you want. And with Green coming back and now Zach Pop on the way back, there could be some reinforcements. Yeah, uh, thinning the the herd of potentially um, inappropriate people in inappropriate roles, as it were. We shall see uh, probably in short order rather than than long order. Like you said, I think after the All Star break, this team is going to look very different on the pitching side. Anyway, yeah. Uh, Kevin Kiermeyer is not on the injured list, but also I remember even when. When he played for Tampa, him having back issues that kept him out of the lineup on on different occasions, and that has flared up on him. Uh, Hazel May was saying tonight the worst he's ever had it, which is not really what you want to hear from Kevin Kiermaier. No, although he thankfully is actually expecting to start on Saturday. He thinks that it's it's better now, mostly. He says it's still some soreness. It isn't what you want to hear. I mean. The Jays were very lucky, or have been very lucky, I should say, with Kevin Kiermaier's health, because, you know, we talked about this when he was acquired, and how we were saying he better not be the only outfielder they get. He wasn't. They got Varsho. This is a man who hasn't played more than 120 games, 129 games, since 2015, and he's only played 100 games twice since 2017. So... He's not going to stay healthy. I mean, you, the odds of that are just astronomically slim. So him only being day-to-day three times has actually been very lucky for the Blue Jays. So the back is a little more worrying, but hopefully it's a just a random thing that happened as opposed to something that could keep him out. Yeah, it does put um, not a lot of pressure on on the way the lineup is constructed or the, the defense is constructed. Um, it hurts you in left, right? Because you have Whit Merrifield now instead of Dalton Varsho. But Varsho is a capable center fielder, and you don't lose anything on the infield by putting Santiago Espinal at second base, but you lose something probably in the lineup with the way Santiago Espinal has been hitting this year. So certainly it would be an upgrade to get Kiermaier back in there. Yep. Uh, defensively as well. You know, all right. Merrifield's fine in the outfield, but you know, Varsho is the best defensive left fielder in baseball this year. So... If you have those two guys out there, it'll help this pitching staff stay perfect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely perfect. Um, speaking of pitchers who aren't perfect, Alec Manoa faced real competition for the first time. And uh, although I am sure he was not, you know, planning on on specifically attempting to defeat the minor leaguers with, with all of the tricks up his sleeve, he got rocked. For two and two thirds innings in, down in uh, Florida. Yeah, I gave up eleven earned runs and ten hits and two and two third with two walks, three strikeouts, and two homers. And look, I, there's a lot of things that go on in in the minors and rehab starts where guys just get shelled. Uh, I, I think it was Deck McGuire was talking about he once saw Brandon Morrow give up nine runs in three innings while he was throwing 97 miles an hour. And then he came out and struck out 17 batters like when he got, when he got back <laughs> to the major leagues. But 
it still doesn't help when you've seen a guy just struggle to get batters out and get batters to not make good contact and also to throw strikes. He still walked two batters in two and two third. So yes, maybe his, his fastball shape was better and his pacing with the pitch clock was better. They said his slider was still not there. And guess what? He needs his slider to pitch successfully. Yeah, 100%. So, look, I, I'm not going to make any proclamations about his future or anything like that based on one rehab outing because that's insane. But I also think it means he's not going to be back in the bigs anytime soon. Yeah, I, I think this is, a, this is a very slow process. As much as the media is going to jump all over it because it's something that people are interested in and it's a name people recognize... I don't think we're at a, a point in his redevelopment that dates are meaningful at all in terms of what's happening. No. He just has to get to the point where he's succeeding the way he needs to succeed. And he's not there yet. Yeah, 100%. Um, oh, how the mighty have fallen, as, as it were. That concludes our uh, look at the last little while in Blue Jays land. Uh, on the field uh, we are going to go now to an interview with dennis gilbert um on the anniversary of the bobby bonilla contract which is uh july 1st correct yep july july 1st the That's Mets when he gets are paid are going to pay bobby bonilla a million dollars um if you have been watching baseball for the last 10 years it's possible you don't even know who bobby bonilla is or that he ever played for the mets uh, but if you do, uh, it is still an interesting enigma in the baseball world. And uh, Josh uh, had the privilege of interviewing uh, Mr. Gilbert. Um, I was unable to join, uh, but we will come back with Josh and uh, Dennis right after this. It's always tease, 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 tease. Well, I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dennis Gilbert, a the founder of the Beverly Hills Sports Council and uh, managing partner or director of Paradigm Gilbert, a extensive career in baseball and one of the first super agents. Dennis, thanks for joining me. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Josh. Yeah. So part of the reason we wanted to have you on today is because you are the architect of the famous Bobby Bonilla contract. But before we get into that... <laughs> you got your start obviously in professional baseball and then in insurance how did you transition into becoming a, a baseball agent uh interesting you ask uh there were a lot of things that led up to it the one thing that you know being in the insurance business for a while um, and being out of baseball for five, six years, I found that an awful lot of players were coming out of the game broke. Mm. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to take care of them. Uh, my good friend, Bobby Brett, uh, and I were talking. Uh, he was a former minor league player, as I was. Uh, 
we all know who his brother was. Yeah. Anyway, so his brother called me up one day and said, Dennis, Bobby just got in a fight with the owner of the Royals. Can I help him? <laughs> so I jumped on the red eye, went to Kansas City, and the rest is history. Yeah, I mean, no, was there, obviously you, in your insurance business, you had dealt with some very high-profile clients. Was it different, though, with your very first baseball client being George Brett, arguably the best player in baseball at the time? And George was already a client. He was an insurance client. Ah, okay. I knew George well, and I loved the game and knew the game and still loved the game and know the game. And then I guess it was through the relationship with George Brett that you ended up getting Brett Saberhagen as a client, correct? Uh, in part, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, just being able to say, like, George George Brett says, this guy's good. That's kind of a pretty good endorsement, I imagine. Of course. And Tom Gordon and uh, Danny Tartable and numerous players who were in Kansas City organization at the time. Uh, Kevin Apier. So, oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot, lot, of, lot of names that our listeners will definitely recognize there. And then... Obviously, you ended up negotiating Jose Canseco's massive contract, uh, a record-breaking contract, Barry Bonds. But the one, the interesting thing about the Saberhagen one, which is why I wanted to go back to him specifically, is because he was, I believe, one of the earlier clients of yours to get a large deferral in his contract. But that was negotiated up front. Am I right about that? It was, actually. It was, it was after... Uh... He was dealt to New York. That's correct. So I guess now we'll, we'll move into the, the the timing element of Bobby Bonilla. What made that different, and I think to people like me and others, is that unlike Saberhagen or Bruce Suter before him or many others in the interim, he did not have the de- deferrals in his contract at the beginning. It was a, a buyout agreement with the Mets. Is that is that Am I getting that right? As was Bonilla. Yeah. Bonilla. Renee's contract was also changed uh, a year after the deal was done. Now, so I guess the question I have then, given that it was an alteration to a previous deal as opposed to a negotiated, you know, back and forth, was that hard to convince Bobby Bonilla to turn down, I think it was around $6 million at the time and take it later? Not at all. Not at all. We, we were, uh, we talked about it from inception. It took a while. We, we brought a lawyer in to help craft it. We helped and also, uh, you know, be part of the negotiation. And do you, when you, when you go into a conversation like that with a player, whether it's Bobby Bonilla or anybody before or since, how, how do you approach that in terms of trying to get them to understand the, the financial, you know, the present and future value situation that, that is occurring for them? Good question. Uh, you know, I've, you know, having the insurance background, you know, you're, you're always telling people take money out of the bank of today and let's put it into the bank of tomorrow. And not only doing that, what you want to do is you know, take care of your family if God forbid something happens to you. So, you know, life insurance teaches you about deferred income, teaches about uh, tax-free growth teaches you about an awful lot of things. 
And so seeing all the people that I grew up with playing and years after they played, uh, having little or no money, having to take menial jobs after being big stars, I was very cognizant of their situation. And I didn't want my players to be in that situation and always try to talk everybody into some kind of deferral. That's, that's really interesting. Do you find that that's an approach that, I don't know, is not as common among other agents who don't have, say, the insurance background and the really deep understanding of those kind of financials that you did? Well, I don't want to say anything condescending about other agents here. It's sure. just, this is the way I, I felt that I was trained and I felt it gave me a big advantage over my competitors. And if you could see by our book, uh, we had over 200 major league players. And I always talked about security from inception. So I guess the question then, the follow-up to that would be that if you were to be advising players now, would that still be the just, and, and, and teaching agents, it's like, this is the way that you would want to let, to have them approach their business because you obviously look at the future of the players as opposed to just the present situation on a level that, I don't think I've seen as often. It's it's in my DNA. When I came out of the game, I was scared out of my mind. You know, being a baseball player, you're you're giving up summer vacations to play on teams. You know, you're even giving up academics so you can you know do everything you can to improve your ability. When you and so what baseball trains you for? It's just like training to be a king. Now you're king, and now you're over being a king. What do you do? <laughs> it trains you for nothing else. Oh, I, I like that, actually. That, that that sums things up so well. <laughs> it's a nice little quote, but also like really perfectly encapsulates what players deal with. And I, I just, I'm, I wish that it was a more commonplace. It's funny when you look at deals, people often decry the, the deferred money, like Bobby Bonilla Day, which we're talking about right now, it's almost treated as a joke, but it really shouldn't be. Well, most of the pushback uh, people get, I approach ballplayers all the time because I'm still selling plans that are uh, mimicked after the Bonilla deal. Uh, and I'll t talk about that in a minute. The only pushback I get are for, from financial advisors. Lawyers like it, accountants like it for the most part. Financial advisors are generally opposed to it. They like to you know, control the finances of, of the player. Um, and they don't. <laughs> so uh, they don't control the future. You know, my best advice for the listeners out there that have gotten into professional sports is, you know, instead of just taking the advice of a friend to hire a financial advisor, or you can take his advice, what you do is he asks to speak to some of his retired players and see what kind of plan that they have and how they're doing financially. My plan works, as you can see. Yes, <laughs> that's the reason we're still talking about it, because it works. So, uh, uh, so you know, when you're taking an insurance product, we figured out 
you know, with the merging of another company that uh, were experts in this, we learned how to finance these policies or these products. And so the player's not even coming out of pocket with anything. He's just posting collateral. Oh, wow. During his career. So this is what I'm doing today. Uh, this is kind of what got me uh, thinking that working two jobs, two full-time jobs um, was a little nuts. I had three children, wife, same wife, just se celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. So it works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, honestly, I, I honestly think that that's kind of what I wanted to get a better understanding of. And I really appreciate it. And, and thanks for taking the time to talk to me about this. Well, Josh, it's a pleasure to be on your show. So July 1, happy Bobby Bonilla Day. <laughs> happy Bobby Bonilla Day to you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. So blessings in life are free But you can keep them for the best And please now give me more That's what I want That's what I want That's what I want That's what I want And we are back Well that was a, a, a very different take on uh on, on being an agent I, we've, we've interviewed another agent around here and he <laughs> I'm sure they had a, a, a different entry into the uh, the entire industry but uh, the long-term contract fan um, for for interesting reasons yeah it's funny because the first agent is the one who introduced me to the second agent and that's how <laughs> that interview came about uh, and it's funny so Dennis Gilbert you know if you ask people to name the biggest super agent in baseball, they'd say Scott Boras. Of course they yeah. did. In the 90s, it was Dennis Gilbert. Three years in a row, he signed contracts that broke records. Jose Canseco with the, I think it was with the A's. It was. Then he did, it was Bobby Bonilla with the Mets. And then Barry Bonds with the Giants. He, he was the agent for all of those. So this is this was like the guy in the early '90s. He somehow got Danny Tartable a giant contract, even though he was never healthy and never did play much. <laughs> but yeah, and then and so, but he greatly encouraged people to take more money over a longer term, a really longer term. Like Brett Saberhagen is still getting paid too by the Mets. It's pretty amazing. But as opposed to less money over a shorter term, but upfront. So it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know what else is interesting? Uh, our listener questions. Time now to hear from our listeners. That just seems silly. Here are the rules. First I ask a question, then you ask a question. Now how does that sound, sweetheart? Could you repeat the question, please? I'm going to go with the first one from Andrew Rushbler at a Rushbler on Twitter, where, yes, we still exist. Uh, is it time to bring back the home run jacket? Was, was that more incentive to hit dingers than we thought? Um, that is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek question, but I think it speaks to an interesting thing about hitting philosophy, doesn't it? Yeah, and I, you know, there's something that something that's come up too, in terms of like their their opposite field approach, their lack of power. I wonder how much the new park and people trying to hit to certain parts of the new park is coming into it because Bo Vlad 
Chapman, Varsho, Merrifield, they're all considerably worse at home. So I, you know, just on the psychology of the home run jacket, I, I just think that there might just be an element of people trying to do things they shouldn't be doing. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, consciously or not, having a prize, gamifying, hitting a home run. There, there's obviously, you know, a dopamine hit like anybody else would get for being lauded for doing that. And there's a difference between high fives and actually getting a trophy, whether it be a jacket or not. Um, there's, a, there's a reason a lot of sports teams have, or a lot of baseball teams, have some kind of home run ritual. Um, because it, it kind of works. It's, it's like in talking to players about taking more walks to get on base more as an organizational philosophy can can up the amount of walks you get so yeah i don't know what happens um i i would like to see more dingers though that's for sure the red yep. Sox have hit a bunch um uh, yep <laughs> roy uh at yeah uh i roy uh just talking about just talk about your expectations expectations for this guy and a up arrow to hyunjin ryu uh, we did touch on that yeah i don't it's hard to put expectations on it. I'll really have to see what his stuff and velocity look like in the minors when he's actually doing his rehab starts, not just live bulk batting practice. When you know when there's when there's adrenaline and and just more involved in the pitching, then when you're just throwing the guys, it's hard to get. Also, his first time at that point, right? So he has to build up his velocity and his stuff. If if he gets to that point where he's throwing in the low nineties. My expectations for Ryu will be that he's Ryu. If he doesn't, then I think he's going to be a, a, a very much a fifth starter. Yeah, I, I think I did not really expect him to throw another pitch in a Blue Jays uniform when he was getting Tommy John surgery. So it's hard to have expectations when I expected the guy to retire <laughs> after the rehab. Yeah. Uh, uh, Andy I don't think he would have to. He, well, why would he retire after the rehab? Why get the surgery if he's going to retire? But I did. I I originally did not expect to pitch for the Blue Jays again, though. Yeah. Well, for the if you retire, you don't get the rest of the money in the contract, right? Oh, I see. I see. Well, well, you wouldn't have to rehab though. No. You, 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 anyway, <laughs> he didn't do that. He came back. <laughs> he uh, Andy Mac at Andy Mac ninety two ninety three says, "How many of the Jays' castaways? Uh, many of uh, Alex Anthopoulos's." Uh, B prospects are now good MLB players. Guys like John Birdie, Harold Ramirez, Kendall Graveman, Anthony Descalfini, etc. Seems like a lot of solid regulars fell through the cracks over the past five years or so. Descalfini. Descalfini. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't really get this, especially because some of those guys were traded. You know, Kendall Graveman was traded for Josh Donaldson. <laughs> you know, it's like he wasn't given up on in any way whatsoever. You know, he was traded for a franchise player who won MVP. Desclafani was in that Marlins trade. Again, it's not like he fell through the crack. It was a guy that Marlins probably wanted to trade Josh Johnson, Mark Burley, and Jose Reyes. And then, yeah, Harold Ramirez, he got cut from a few teams, and he was 27 years old and not getting it done. Okay, that's a guy. And John Birdie's not good. So... Every team has guys that do this. You know, like you could say, if you want to say Gio Urshela, this happened to Gio with Gio Urshela. But like, I mean, John Birdie has an OPS plus of 81. He's just fast. He's still not a good baseball player. So 
I don't know. I, I just think that that's how baseball goes. You trade some guys who become guys. You trade some guys who didn't. I mean, look at the rest of the guys that they traded away. Where's Daniel Norris now? So I, I think that in the end, things have worked out no differently for the Blue Jays than they would for any other team in that regard, really. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think this organization fails to recognize talent any more than any other. Rec- like, I don't think that's a problem. I think it has a problem developing certain kinds of talent, but that's a different matter entirely. I, I don't think they could have salvaged, you know, by 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 whatever method, uh, by hanging on to the right guys and suddenly had a, a you know a string of regulars and no depth problems. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had a couple questions over on the Discord. If you are a patron of Artificial Turf Wars, www.patreon.com slash turfpod. Did I get yep. that right? Yeah, turfpod. Yep. Uh, you can come on and uh, join our Discord. Um, Luke asks uh, a question. How would you rank the toastiness of the chairs of John Schneider, Ross Atkins, and Guillermo Martinez? Um, I, for a second, thought this was about stadium renovations, and then I really looked into the <laughs> Who's on the hot seat, Josh? Oh, I think Martinez should be. I don't know if he is, but I can't see how he wouldn't be. And the other two, not so much. I think that their jobs will be more in the balance if the Jays miss the postseason. Because Atkins can't – he's tied to Schneider. Atkins, this is his third manager, right? The first one he inherited, fine. But then he handpicked Charlie Montoyo and then fired him. And then he handpicked John Schneider. If John Schneider goes, Atkins has to go with him. You can't, you don't get three cracks at their manager. Yeah, I, I believe that. And if, despite all of our, our whinging about um, the Blue Jays' offense and the problems with it, uh, which is obviously would make Martinez the one on the hot seat, uh, they are actually incredibly in a playoff hunt still. Go figure. <laughs> well, as of right now, they're in a playoff spot. Yeah. But, I say I say yeah. hunt because it, it everything is you know in the flow because it's yeah. before the All Star break. Um, and Luke also asked on the Discord, why is this team so much harder to watch than objectively bad teams like in twenty seven or twenty eighteen? Well, I, I think that well, you you can answer first. I have my own answer, but you can go ahead first. Uh, well, I think because. Interestingly, of the lack of blowout wins, although they have had a couple of decent, comfortable ones in the last week or so, they have been the exception rather than the rule. So a a win feels a little bit like you got lucky or got away with something, and the losses where where things go wrong um, feel, well, it was bound to go wrong. So there's not a lot of confidence building wins in there for me. That's why it's it's infuriating because you know that one thing that goes wrong is is a nail in the coffin because the offense is probably only going to score three or four runs tops, um, and and a victory is you're still on the edge of your seat. Maybe I don't want to be on the edge of my seat every night. Maybe I'd like to see them you know do that thing where they scored twenty runs in in Tampa Bay more than once every season. <laughs> I know I'm asking a lot. Yeah, and, and just to take that further, first off, I think you're remembering 2017 poorly. 2017 sucked. The Jays were coming off back-to-back ALCS appearances, and then they started, what, 1-12 or something like that, and they never got to 500. That was infuriating watching that season. 
But 2018 and 19, there were just no expectations. So it wasn't frustrating when they were bad because you expected them to be bad. So when they did something cool, like coming back on on the Angels or something like that, or the Rays, like with, the, with that game against the Rays, and I think it was 2019 where they hit all those home runs in the ninth to win. It's actually you. You can enjoy that more because it's just like holy crap! I can't believe they did that when you weren't already thinking, oh my god, they're losing again. You know, it's like oh yeah, they're losing again. Of course they are because they suck. <laughs> With expectations comes frustrations, and 2016 was like this. If people don't remember, 2016 was awful when it came to. It was it was this. The pitching was carrying the team completely, and the offense just all these good hitters that just never showed up, other than Donaldson. Yeah, 2016 Redux. Uh, yeah. yeah, that concludes our questions segment, uh, which means I have here in my in my uh, container on the desk. No, I, I don't have a container, but I do have a gold star to hand out, Josh. I think that's rather brilliant. So I did good, okay, right? Let's hear it. I mean, I would have thought you'd get a gold star. You enjoy that. You've earned it. Brandon Belt. Brandon Belt is on the All-Star ballot, or was on the All-Star ballot, um, you know, prior to these starters being announced. Um, <clears throat> and he was asked a very important question. He was, he was second in the voting, Josh. Uh, you want to tell the people at home who was first in the voting? For, for Some guy named Shohei Otani or something? Uh, that's a, I, don't I, don't, a weird, I don't even know if you have the pronunciation right. I've never heard of him before. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... Asked about being second in uh, the All-Star Game voting to Shohei, Brandon Belt said, and I quote, Yeah, that's how you know it's rigged. I should be number one. And everybody knows I'm a better hitter than he is, better DH, better leader, but here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, here we are, Brandon. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's got this, it's, when you actually hear it, it's such a dry sense of humor. But... Oh, it's so funny. It's he's just so much fun. When he was asked for that quote, he he trailed Otani by 198 points of slugging percentage, 20 home runs, and 42 runs batted in, and like a million votes. Right? Otani <laughs> <laughs> was the number one vote getter. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's rigged, obviously. Right, of course, yeah. Sorry. So we can't give you an All Star Game berth, Mister Belt. We are not. We don't have those to hand out. But we can, if you would like to come on the podcast and accept it, give you a gold star right here for you it's very pretty we promise to polish it up oh my goodness well that has been uh quite the podcast we have we we took a little bit of a hiatus and we have done it so that we could fill this with additional content one last piece of content do you have a final thought for tonight i do you kind of teased it there belt did not get in and the jays had people up for the final nomination at a bunch of spots they had Robichet, Matt Chapman, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Kevin Kiermeyer. None of them got in. And Vlad is going to be there as a home run derby participant, which could be fun. I enjoyed that. He was awesome in 2019, so good for the show. And maybe he'll start hitting more dingers because he gets back to swinging for the fence. Bo should be there, and he deserved it to me over Corey Seager. But I'm kind of glad that none of those other guys squeaked in from from fan voting. Like, just let them get away, clear their heads for a few days, and come back and try to actually play. Oh, yeah, Whit Merrifield was the other one. And just come back and just be better in the second half. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody – does anybody have a 900-plus OPS in that lineup? No. 
No. Then I don't feel like you need to acknowledge their all-starriness uh, that way, uh, per se. Although, I would not yeah, be Boba surprised. Shet for sure, deserves to be there. But Yeah. I, I would not be surprised if the, the reserves and or the million substitutions that are going to happen in the next week and a half are, uh, <laughs> are going to result in more Blue Jays on the roster. But that's okay. Yeah, I mean, they have to have one. That's the rules. Yeah. And Bichette will get there. And I could see there's like there's a few guys actually that do deserve to go. Kevin Gossman absolutely should be in the All-Star game. No questions asked. And the relievers have been making a pretty good case for Tim Mesa. He has the yeah. second best ERA of all left-handed pitchers and the left-handed relievers in baseball. And he hasn't allowed an inherited runner to score in six weeks. Sounds like you'd like to give him the ball. 16 inherited runners, none of them scored. Sounds like you want to give Tim Mesa the ball. Yeah. Like, I, I would think it'd be cool to see him in the All-Star game. He's not going to get there, I don't think. Middle relievers, especially lefty relievers who have 38 appearances and only 28 innings. Those guys don't usually make the All-Star team, but it would be fun. Yeah, I mean, weird things have happened. Steve Delabar made the All-Star game on the, on the final fan vote, so who knows? Um, my final thought, the Immaculate Grid, which I alluded to all the way back at the beginning of this very long mm. podcast... The Immaculate Grid is for trivia nuts uh, who are better at trivia than I am, quite frankly. Um, it's fun, but man, do I have trouble with this. What it is, ImmaculateGrid.com uh, puts up nine squares, and the nine squares are kind of like a mini Sudoku. They have uh, something at the top and something at the side that the thing you put in this, the player you put in the square has in common. So it, it might be a, you know, 20 home run season, or it might be uh, played for the Phillies. Um, and then you have to, uh, you have to put a correct name in there. You get only nine guesses to get all nine squares, right? Uh, and if you, if you turn all nine squares, right with correct answers, you have an immaculate grid, um, after the immaculate inning, which is of course, nine pitches to strike out the side. Uh, man, do I not associate guys with teams that they played on? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm really good when you tell me 40 home run season played for this team. I'm like, I got you. Like 90% of the time I can think of that guy or, you know, whatever statistic sure. it is. But you just throw two teams at me, I feel like I'm lost in an ocean. So Greg and I were talking about this off air. I have a similar problem where I can't think of logical answers. Like I, I forgot that Kevin Kiermeyer played for the Rays. So when they did a Blue Jays and Ray, I did Tanyan starts because that's the only name that was coming to my head. To the point where I have accused jo Josh of flexing his weird, obtuse baseball knowledge. But apparently that's just the way his brain works. Yeah, I just literally forgot the most obvious answer. But I do, they added this thing called a rarity score to it. And I think that encourages people trying to be like, oh, my, my rare guesses are better than your, no, screw that. Like if you get it right, you get it right. Yeah, I mean, immaculate inning doesn't matter if it was the Giants who you struck out on nine pitches. <laughs> it still counts. Ah, oh, that was my final dig of the night. There we are. So, <laughs> uh, I have been Greg Wisniewski at Coolhead 2010, and you have been Josh Housem at Joshua Housem. Uh, our guest was Dennis Gilbert, and this has been episode number 273 of Artificial Turf Wars, and we'll talk at you next week. 